Yeah, Vince and I here in the studio, we got uh, the next guest with us, and we say welcome to uh, Carl Thrower. Welcome, Carl. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, we have this uh, little talk here before, because we've got exactly one month to the election coming up today, or the polling day. Uh, we're sure that we're going to get a poll, it sounds like it. A lot of people are interested in the positions on Legislative Council and presumably for the ministerial posts as well. First of all, why are you standing for election this time, Tom? Well, I think, um, well, I've always thought um, that if you're a part of a society, um, everybody has a responsibility that if they think they can help improve that society, they have a duty to do it. Um, and I think with the knowledge um, that I've obtained through, through my working life um, can fill a lot of gaps that certainly um, the processes on the island seem to be missing. Um, and I think that you have a responsibility to do it. Yes, and uh, if you now are successful, you're getting into council and uh, you get, can we say, the leader of the pack, um, which would be the first things that you address, which would be your priority areas, both from the aspect of your uh, background and what you want to do and what's needed to do? I think, first of all, you have to look at fixing communication. Um, within um, between both SHG um, and the people and also um, you've got to fix the communication problems that are internal to SHG or should I say um, service support um, in order to get the island moving. Um, I think a lot of people are expecting that from the ministerial system. You can't have accountability for things unless people actually understand what's going on. Um, so that would be my first priority. I think then the next thing to do would be to for the councillors to sit down and um, come up with um, a plan so highlight certain areas at the minute it always seems like there is such a broad range of things going through SHG and through the island that we don't focus on anything and that leads us to never finishing anything or to finishing it very poorly um, and I think that the first thing to do is prioritise the economy's got to get going um, you've got to start fixing the economy um, and I think we can do that. I don't think, I'm not somebody who believes in going out to the UK government all the time and saying, please, sir, can we have some more? Um, I hate that. Um, I think that there are certain projects and certain things we can do on Ireland that are quite minimal, um, but can re um, give us very good results to get the economy going. You know, um, we have people leaving the island almost en masse now, and one of the biggest complaints is affordable housing. Well, we have a housing policy that's been done, or a land's disposal policy, which is in its final, it could do with a few more little tweaks, not much. But then you still can't actually walk into somewhere and buy land. The process of identifying a piece of land and buying it just puts people off. There's so many people who've said, oh, we've identified one piece of land, we go, and then that's a private piece of land, and then we have to go back. I think you should be able to walk into somewhere and see four or five pieces of land that are for sale by SHG. And those, that should be very clear. There should be a price on it. And I think that price should indicate the, what it would be for a first-time buyer to buy it, what it would be for an investor to buy it, what it would be for, for somebody for, you know, um, who just simply wants to a bigger home. And I think that the first-time buyers is where we really need to concentrate. Um, you know, you can't have a situation where 
the average wage is just less than £8,000. And two people can't get a mortgage that can buy a house. It's absolutely diabolical. It's crazy because, i.e., if you want those people to stay on the house, on, on the island, sorry, they have to look for a government landlord house. Well, we haven't got government landlord houses, and the ones that we've got are in such a bad state of repair that we're losing them all the time for, for massive long maintenance schedules. Um, and I think that needs fixing. I think that SHG have all the tools to be able to fix that. And it's a relatively straightforward thing to do. You could do it in a couple of months. You could have people building houses. People build houses, they employ builders. If you're employing the builders, the construction workers, the electricians, then we're also importing things. That puts things on the ships, it gets our container numbers up. That means that you've got more containers on the ship, so the, f the price of the food containers should start to drop. And I think that's the collective responsibility. And unfortunately, I believe that one thing that SHG doesn't do very well is the directorates don't work within each other properly. There's no communication between directorates. So one directorate controls the land, the other one controls building and planning. And I just think that we've split it up a bit, bit cockeyed um, in a way. Um, and the other thing I would do, is, as most people know, um, I'm a very firm believer in affordable energy. I think there should be one goal. It should be to get energy down to 20p or less per, per kilowatt hour. And I know with my experience in big scale stuff, nothing like what the island's got, you can do this. This is an achievable goal. You know, we've just had the island summit. The island summit was mentioned in microgrids. And that's the way the island has to go. Um, you know, we recently had an energy survey done. Um, 2016, the energy um, strategy came out. It was fundamentally flawed. The problem with it was it concentrated on 100% renewable, but not 100% affordable. And the, the design of the systems that came in were exactly what the island asked for. So it wasn't a problem with PASH or Swiss winds. It was a problem with a fundamentally what we asked for as an island. We asked to keep fun, funneling most of our power generation into Rupert's which means when we send electricity all the way out to Blue Hill, you have huge losses on the line, plus you have to maintain them. Well, if you look at a microgrid system, a microgrid system would place smaller generation points and smaller energy points around the island and save on the maintenance of the cables, but also it reduces the, costs, you know, the, the losses and the cost of those losses down by a huge amount. Mm -hmm. So... Um when it comes to um, trying to put economic activity on this island on a firm, sustainable, permanent footing, um, have you got a kind of wish list of what you'd like to see happen? And I'll emphasise, I'm not looking for election promises, I'm just <laughs> saying a wish list of stuff that you'd like to see sometime during those four years uh, from the 14th of October onwards actually getting underway even if not completed within those four years I think the cost of energy is the primary goal, problem um, and I know this from obviously my background in telecommunications so I know that when OneWeb came to the island um, they raised a concern with the simple fact of the cost of electricity um, and that's it, you know, um, you fix the electricity, you lower food prices, 
but also we've got to lower the cost of shipping. Now, shipping is fixed by the BAF and the CAF rates. You know, that's a deal that we, we've already signed, we've agreed to. You know, they're international rates. We can't alter them. But if you put more... Can, can I just explain? So, so what you're talking about is fluctuations in currency exchange and fluctuations in fuel prices. They will always affect shipping, but what, sh what affects it greater is the number of containers on the ship. You know, that's what the, some of the reason price rises have been. It's about container numbers. We're down in the 50s now. You know, the estimates when we were looking for a shipping contract, we went for a ship that can hold four times that number of containers. The ship still costs the same to sail here. It still uses the same amount of fuel to go from A to B. The problem is the amount of containers on the ship. And the question is, how do you get them up? Well, you know, export would be great, but realistically... Building up the export market, um, fisheries is a real disaster. Um, you know, um, I've never seen anything handled so badly as a business as what the fisheries has been treated, and that's everybody in, in fisheries. You know, um, what should have been, we should be shipping off X amount of containers more on each ship, has turned into we're not even getting the, sh the food in the shops. You know, so that needs fixing. I think it's very close to being fixed. Um, you know, the, the work over at the fish factory is working. Um, you know, they've gone down to uh, a much more efficient system um, to help with that. And obviously the bigger ships are coming in to help with... Uh, and they didn't have to wave a magic wand to actually do that, did they? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I think the problem is that there are lots of personalities involved. Unfortunately, those personalities have developed now until the stage where they're just not getting on with each other. Mm, yeah. um, you know, um, and... I think that fisheries was always one of the, the more, more easy um, economic things. The, the satellite ground stations um, are obviously a, a major thing with the cable. The cable could bring in all sorts of benefits as well to the economy. Um, but they're difficult. Um, it's not just a matter of, oh, we've got the cable, now, now we can do this. You know, you've got to get, now the challenge is to get the Make internet mm. from Rupert's into the businesses, into people's houses. Um, yeah, just go back slightly there because you mentioned that we need, for example, house building, which is a sector that you hope to develop. But do you, would you like to change, let's say, how the Bank of St. Lina, which is a government entity, how they are working together with gov the government, the ministers, to achieve this? Because you say you can't get... A bank loan for, for building yourself a house, even if you have two, let's say, two mid-income earners, you can't get the mortgage. Um, what can government, the owner of the bank, in your view, what should they do about it? I think that the government and the board of the bank um, need to work on their relationship a huge amount. Um, I have to be careful what I say here because obviously I'm on the Financial Services Authority. Um, I think that it's possible. Um, you know, wherever you go in the world, normally they have lower interest rates for first-time buyers um, and things. And let's just think about how mortgages currently work. You know, um, so we're a young, you're a young couple, maybe around 25 years old, and you're thinking about buying a first house or, you know, just two friends can get together and buy a house. So you start off, you're 25 years old, you can have a mortgage until you're 45, but your working life is until you're 65, so one, another way of looking at it is not only just lower the, the, um, the rates on the loan, but also extend the time of the loan. 
Or maybe the government can work on the fact that you don't have to spend all that money on the land to begin with. You lease the land for a very small amount until you finish paying for your mortgage, and then you say so you do a 25-year mortgage. When you're 45, then you can have a loan for five years to pay for the land. But you've got to understand that if we don't fix this, what we're going to end up with is a, a time bomb. We're going to end up with a lot of people renting properties, which is fine until while you're in work and you're earning you know, um, your money. But as soon as you hit the island pension, you can't afford to rent that house, and then the government have got to find you somewhere to live. And that won't sh doesn't show up in any of our 10-year plans, because it's not a 10-year plan, it's a 30- or 40-year plan. But you're quite right, you know, SHG actually own the bank. The bank has somewhere around £80 million in it. Now, I'm not saying that we should be cavalier. You know, there, there are laws in place to protect everybody's savings in the bank. But maybe we just need to start getting the bank to offer investment to the people who've got that money in that will pay them a higher rate of interest that is safe. And that doesn't matter. There's lots of projects. Public-private partnership is the phrase for it in the UK. There are lots of projects where we should be looking at just asking Centrelinians to invest in their own, own island. And people are already doing it. Businesses already do it. You know, um, There's lots of people who are investing um, in their own infrastructure. Now. But there is money that people have on island, and I'm pretty sure that if we give them good reasonable way to invest their money we can move the island forward on it yeah as we mentioned earlier on today uh, there, there is a lot of money that the bank got you mentioned it, and most of the 80 million pounds that's in the bank it's uh, actually be lent out to uk in there in certain yeah ways. um so okay. i can tell you for a fact because actually it's in the public um, accounts that are on the bank website the investment that the bank has overseas is 60 million pounds um, and it expects on most of those to get anywhere from 1.3% to 6% interest on it. Um, which is not good, to say the least. No, which, which is why. I mean, it's very safe banking. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm not suggesting that the bank is an error in any way. They, they look after our money extremely well. But maybe we could just offer on Ireland different investments to people. We, we tend to be, I think the island has too many one-stop shops. You know, um, the bank um, does it. You know, I know that I've got money in the bank. It earns X amount of interest. But then if I thought there was a really good scheme, I could put my money in that would help the island. Um, and I might get a bit more, say 3% instead of 0.1%, then I would be willing to do that. But you have to have the scheme there to offer it to people. And I think that's what SHG really need to work on. We are so good at going and asking for money overseas, which is going to dry up now. You know, the whole world is in economic meltdown with the COVID issues. You know, so let's start looking inward for our investment. And I think the way that SHG looks after local businesses is absolutely disgraceful. You know, and I, I say that because I, I've been sitting as the vice president of the Chamber of Commerce for, for a number of years now. And it is a struggle for local businesses to interface with SHG in all ways. Um, you know, it always seems to me like they, they would sooner get somebody from overseas in than actually get investment from an island. And I think that has to stop. That's something the ministers can do, is say, look, you know, we, we now got to help local businesses a lot more. Hmm. Well, yes. Um, the, the, that has um, been said by more than just yourself, actually. Um, when you say you have a struggle to interface, 
are you saying that it's difficult to get SHG to talk about what you want to talk about and they just either run away or don't answer, keep a silence? No, I think they don't consider them enough. I don't think they consider the local economy from the um, local business's point of view. Um, you know, it's like uh, when ESH closed down, ESH was funding some, some very good projects. Um, I won't say everything that ESH did was good, but then they just, rather than actually just step down the funding, it was just stopped. You know, and that, you know, we, we've got a, a country where we all agree that the economy is getting worse and worse. Everybody says it's never been as bad as it is now. But our government just turned around and stopped real help for businesses. Um, and I think that was, that was the problem um, with that. Yes, uh, definitely. So, so there's people just about to get on their feet and uh, the bit of assistance that they're getting off ash is, is taken away and the carpet's pulled mm -hmm. from under their feet. Yeah, and, you know, once again, we never replaced even the, the fundamental part of ESH that was just there to help local businesses. Yeah. You know, normally you would have, um, I know we've got sustainable development, but when sustainable development um, come out and talk, talk to people, it's all about the big stuff. It's all about, you know, cryptocurrencies and that, um, massive coffee plantations and things. But how does that help the merchant? Now, you know, to me, one of the big problems is um, the Rupert's. In Rupert's, it looks like all the land has gone to SHG for things, like the airport director to have land, yet it's the merchants that actually need the warehouses. Now, classic example, we're desperate for money. You've got the merchants who are ready to buy land to build their warehouses on. You, they've got the money to build the warehouses. So we're talking, I would think, a few million pounds worth. And SHG are holding them all up because they've taken the land for their own people. Um, and they won't actually simply say, this land is available for buying in Rupert's. And I, I think that's the problem with SHG. SHG, to me, in almost very, it's almost like a private company. you know. And I, I think that that's the fundamental. It's all about communication. It's about yeah. communication within SHG. I just don't think there is enough. Well, you, well uh, the, you have to have a certain mental attitude before you can communicate. <laughs> you mean SHG should, in every, before every meeting, they should say, we're here to serve. <laughs> because I think that is the fundamental problem that they forget. And you, you will drive that if you get elected? I would, yes. I, I believe that the, we have to get communication much better on Ireland um, completely. Uh, if we step aside a little bit, we uh, talked to, to quite some extent about investment and uh, infrastructure. Uh, the topic we brought up earlier on as well, that's on everybody's mind. What are we doing with the health provision on the island? It's not going too well. It's very topical. That's what everybody's talking about. What would you like to see? I think currently it comes under the same thing, lack of communication. Um, I am extremely surprised and very worried about this um, recent drop in co um, COVID restrictions for medical staff. I think it's absolutely foolhardy. Um, you know, but I think it's it's basic communications. Only now are we finding out that we haven't had a surgeon on island. Um, the oxygen plant up at Bradley still isn't working. Now, before it was all we are not going to lower um, COVID restrictions until the oxygen plant is fixed. But now, because it suits somebody, hey, hey, presto, it gets done. If only they'd help everybody else that fast. Um, and. The problem is communication again. It's, you know, um, the truth is I can't comment much on health because I have no idea what's happening in health like everybody else don't. It's all what you hear on the streets and that. 
You know, people have been suspended, people are coming back from holidays and that. But the question is, how did, I think it's more fundamental, how did we end up without a surgeon and an anaesthetist? You know? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I actually heard about it off you. You know, you, it was when I, when I heard it on you about um, the problems at the hospital. Yeah, and it's, it's something that uh, everybody in St. Lena, because we are an aging population, you said before, people are uh, running hand over fist overseas at the moment, and we are, can we say, stuck with us old stogies. <laughs> mm, yeah, I, I agree. And I think with people running overseas, I think for the first time, it's middle-aged people who are going as well. Um, you know, I can't really say anything because my partner, um, Delma, obviously, um, she went, um, I met her in the Falkland Islands at first because she was down in the Falkland Islands to, to pay for a house, which is now done, and that's given us some, somewhere to live when we move to the island. So I think stopping people, for, it's not about stopping everybody from going. I think people who leave the island gain experience, obviously, that they can't get on the island, which makes them potentially better people when they come back or certainly more suitable to the more experience you've got I think the more likely you are to raise in, rise into management positions and things like that um, and obviously there's educational benefits to being overseas but I think the question is how do we get the people who are leaving now back to the island? Yeah, preferably we want people to go if they go on contracts they are coming back mm -hmm. the big problem is which is in UK and partly on the Falklands when people go for good and they settle and they got the mortgage over there and all the connections over there, they will never come back, will they? No, um, although I would say that quite a few people do come back early pension age now. Um, there's quite a few people who do seem to come back. Um, I was actually um, speaking with some, somebody um, on Sunday and they've, they've just returned. Um, I won't tell you who it is so I can say that they're, they're, the average age in that the, of them is 67. So they, they've reached pension age, and now they've decided to return back, back to St. Helena, um, which is great in some ways, because obviously one thing that is good on St. Helena is people tend to work much later in life, um, you know, or voluntarily, obviously. They don't have to. They can, can go pension, but there's quite a few few people who work into their 80s um, in some cases even. Yeah, and those people that then have a lot of experience, even if they are, as you say, 67 or no they, they, they still got working life and can teach a lot to the younger generations as well, can't they? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I think personally from an education point of view on Ireland, one of the things that we're really missing is the technical college. Um, you know, I think that when you talk to the contractors who, you know, do our electrical work and build our houses and look after our roads and that, the amount of them who went to that technical college is extremely impressive. Um, and now with the loss of that, unfortunately, by the time that those people stop working in, say, 20 years, all of that expertise will be gone, whereas it would actually be nice to reopen the technical college and actually get these people who are returning, welders and people like that, to actually teaching the technical college for a few days a week um, because I think that that's the only problem is at the minute we're doing lots of apprenticeships and that and there is nothing wrong with on-the-job training but in the case of electricians where you have to follow the UK 18th generation um, legislation and things a lot of it you still need classroom training and I think that's the problem with the apprenticeship scheme at the minute the classroom training is missing um, so you learn on the job, but you're not learning about the mathematics, say, of um, load-bearing and things like that, or how to design a load-bearing wall. 
you can build one but yeah, you can't design it because we are a bit short of structural engineers anyway aren't we? well we're pretty <laughs> short of engineers all over actually um you know yeah um, it's not technical uh, skills are missing i think that you must have some elementary knowledge first you can't do everything on the job training certain things like mm. an electrician he won't be very long in the job if you only have on the job training no, you, you can't you can't afford any mistakes and there's, there's also the thing about not not just know how to do it but why you're doing it <laughs> exactly and obviously what we're seeing now is um, obviously i'm on the, the land planning board so i see the plans as they, as they um, come through we're getting a lot more technically um technical houses we're seeing lots more we're, we're moving on to split level houses a lot more now um some of the complex roof structures um, that some of these properties are having yeah. is quite a feat of engineering you know it's not something that you can just chuck some wood on the roof and say hey look i've got a roof um you know and i think that's the danger is that which we're improving our technical building skills but we need the technical training to get there as well you okay. know um i can't argue with that carl thank you <laughs> yes. okay, okay, can i can i can i just come on to one thing um we were discussing with Rob before you uh, some aspects of the ministerial code, um, but not. Um, and one aspect I, I picked up from a letter you wrote in the Independent. I don't know. Last week was it? Or the week uh, yeah, before? No, last week. Right, and uh, you have some issues with what is called uh, collective responsibility, and and I'll explain that just so that the listeners are with us when we talk about it. Um, so in a, a ministerial government, you have the chief minister, you've got four ministers. So you've got a team of five. And when they make particularly a major decision on policy or a big project or a, a new direction, um, all of them are expected, all the ministers are expected to support this decision. And if there is one person who is not quite uh, comfortable with uh, the decision that's been made, um, basically there's two choices, either you resign or you just keep quiet. So, but, but you, in your letter, Carl, you, you are not happy with the principle of collective responsibility. Would you like to explain so why? I think collective responsibility um, is understandable from within the um, SHG but not from the ministers and LegCo um, and the reason for that is I think that people have a right to know what happens in EXCO and democracy is exactly that democracy is that the if there's a vote and there's five ministers like you, like you just said and three ministers say one thing and two ministers go the other way that there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with coming out of that meeting and saying, I didn't agree, I agreed, this is why it went through. I would actually go further and say, there should actually be a public record of how people vote on issues, which is what actually happens in most of the world. You can log on to, whether it's a congressman in the US or an MP in the UK, you can log on to the House of Commons website and see how everybody votes in, in those meetings. And I think that's fine. I, I You know... It's got to be done in a professional manner, you know. Um, it's no good bad-mouthing them down the pub after, after the meeting or anything, but there is nothing wrong with coming out of a meeting and say, um, oh, I didn't agree with the other three, but hey, you know, the three people outvoted me, so it went through. 
And I think it's more about the way that as a minister or as um, a LegCo member, you have to be able to then just get on with the next thing. It's not personal, that isn't. That is just democracy. Otherwise, you end up with five yes-men, and one of the biggest <coughs> complaints on this island is, oh, he's just a yes-man. You know, I can't go into a meeting after what I've just said on the radio, and somebody says, uh, you know, house building comes up, and should, should we help first-time buyers? And three people say no. I'm not going to come out of that meeting now and say, oh, I said no. You know... It's not true. I, I think they were wrong, but they outvoted me. That's fair yeah. enough. And then it depends on the issue. If there are big principal issues, that might, might force you to resign. But for the day-to-day -day issues, you can have different opinions. Yeah, I wouldn't resign for something. I wouldn't even have, offer resignation. No, no, no of course I, not. Um, that, but you can't do that for, for, for every single thing. But it could be really huge things, huge principal things. Then... I don't think it does, yeah. I, I don't think um, expecting ministers to resign because they didn't agree, even on a huge principles thing, is right. Um, once again, that's democracy. You know, the UK has had huge things going through, through, their, um, through the parliament. If every MP who disagrees on a major key issue, like the pullout of Afghanistan, resigned, you would just have election every year. Oh, yeah. 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 Every um, month. That's not the point. <laughs> I think ministers resign when they've made a mistake, a big mistake, or they're held responsible for something. I don't think you can help be held responsible for saying in a, a meeting that's meant to be a democratic meeting, I didn't agree with that person. No, that's correct. Can, can, I, can I just make an emphasis on one point? Okay, so when I read you a letter, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, so you may... There's a vote. There's four in favour, one against... Um, but that one person can start bitching all the time afterwards. That's not the, that's not no. what you're saying. No, not the, so. So the issue is not reopened time and time again, no. which is what we've had under the committee no. system. That person or two people or whatever who are not quite happy with some of the details or not happy with it in principle, they'll just say that and, and wash their hands of it, if you like. And uh, since the majority within the cabinet said, this is what we want to do, then it'll go forward anyway. That's but, correct. But you yeah. won't keep going around in circles, bringing it back. For no, because that's actually where professional conduct comes in. Yeah. Um, so in that case, that's not a recognition. Somebody should be sacked for it. That's up to the minister to say, I'm sorry. You've got to remember that the, minister, the chief minister can actually say, I'm sorry, but I... I you know, we, we, we've got to let you go or something. <laughs> yeah. you, know, yeah. you, you can yeah. do that. It's, that's up to the chief minister. If he finds out people are going around bitching about a, a decision long after the fact or even in an unprofessional way, yeah. you know, um, I was brought up, I was brought up quite strict work-wise um, and um, most of the companies I've ever worked within have always had a three strikes and you're out policy as well. Yeah. Um, well, well so, that's pretty common yeah. these days. I've been for a long time. And I believe that, you know, if it's the first time the, mini the chief minister should say to the minister, oh, you know, you need to calm down after this. And, and, and if they don't do it, then that's it. You know, they, they can be replaced. Um, my only worry with ministerial government is that once you, the people have elected the 12 people, first of all, it depends on how many of those elected 12 people want to become ministers. Yeah. You know, what happens if actually we don't have five of them? Um, and that happened in, in LegCo not so long ago, if you remember, when we lost Paul yeah. Bryan um, and um, somebody else was looking at resigning. They really were going to struggle to find the fifth member. 
and that's my, my worry with, with the ministerial system. If everybody thinks the ministers are going to be held accountable for every little thing, then you're just going to run out of ministers. Um, I think that the most of the problems the ministers will be facing are actually management issues within SHG. And unfortunately, when you read the way that the ministerial code is written, there's actually not a huge amount. The ministers are responsible for the funding, the finance, how the finance is, is organised and that. But you can't actually control the micromanagement of, of, the, of the portfolio. Um, so for saying, for example, um, if we look at things that have upset people recently, um, the fire truck's a big issue. Um, you know, a minister, unless he went over to South Africa and um, purchased the fire truck, um, how do you hold him account? All he would say is, yes, you can have £130,000 for the fire truck or whatever it cost. But then if the people who went over and sourced it get it wrong, then that's really an internal issue for SHG to come back to the ministers. He can tell the portfolio director and say, hey, I'm really not happy about this. Um, but then who actually holds the portfolio director yeah. to account? Because that's certainly not in any of the codes we've got. You and Rob Midwinter have got some common ground on that point. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be very difficult to get the... Um, I think it's going to be a lot of work to, to get to develop the ministerial system on the island. Well, well it will. You know, it will uh, I mean, it's a new thing. There's going to be teething problems. Absolutely, yeah. You know. mm. um. So how will we see your campaign now de developing? What are you going to do to promote where you stand and everybody know where you stand on certain issues? Um, I think, um, or I've, I'm going to do it mainly through posters in, in shops and things. Um, I'm not going to go canvassing. Um, I think that the... With the modern age, um, I would sooner use social media and newspapers and things rather than knocking on everybody's doors. Um, I think sometimes you're bothering people, um, you know, um, and I think when people tend to campaign, it would seem um, there's all stories about certain people going around and offering to dig people's gardens and all sorts. I don't know how true that is. Um, but I think basically that, that's what we'll do. I'll, I'll do a campaign through, through the newspapers. Um, and then um, ask the um, the shop owners hopefully to um, put some adverts in the shops and, and places like that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Carl. That, that, that's been a good intro, I think, don't you, Mike? Yes. And we wish you good luck in the campaign. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. That's great.